Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shalom, everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Michal Abramov, and I am the Shlicha here at Park Avenue Synagogue. And I'm very, very excited for this event and introducing our special guests. Uh, next week, Israelis will be going to the polls for the fifth time in less than four years. Um, as a Shlicha, I actually had the privilege of voting in the election um, in the Israeli consulate last week. And I honestly have to say it was a very emotional day for me. Even that morning, I did not know who to vote for. Um, and in general, this situation for myself and for many Israelis has left us very hopeless and very frustrated um, because it is difficult to remain hopeful that maybe this time and government can actually be formed and stay and not dissolve very fast. Um, and also, we are also very, um, uh, sorry, we're very fearful about the question of what kind of government this government will actually be. So I'm very excited to introduce David Halperin, the CEO of the Israeli Policy Forum. Uh, previously, he was a reporter in Israel for the English edition of the Haaretz. His opinion writings have appeared in a variety of publications, including the Jerusalem Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the New York Times, and many others. He received his BA from the University of Arizona and a master's degree in public policy from the Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs. Uh, welcome, David. Uh, we're very excited to have you in a discussion with our very own Rabbi Cosgrove. Um, and hopefully we're looking forward for the dialogue this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michal. We are honored to have Michal as our shlicha, and I will not put you on the spot and ask you who you voted for, but it is nice to know you've exercised your democratic right to vote in the upcoming Israeli elections. Uh, this evening's program is... Uh, an important one. I would like to think that Park Avenue Synagogue is a place where national Jewish and non-Jewish conversations are had locally in our community and as a community with a strong bond with the people and the state of Israel. I am delighted and honored to welcome you, David, um, of Israel's Policy Forum uh, into our community, we have a strong, ongoing, years-long now relationship between Park Avenue Synagogue and IPF. Much of our leadership is shared with your leadership. It's not just an evening of having you here tonight, but it's an affirmation of a relationship that goes back and goes forward um, in strength to strength. Israel Policy Forum is really an organization devoted to shaping the discourse um, of the pro-Israel, two-state um, vision of, um, of, of our, our people's national home and uh, mobilizing the American Jewish community on issues of concern uh, for, for all of us. So, David, when I was announcing um, that you were coming to the community and we have people both here physically but also online watching us, um, I made sort of a snide remark that it seems like Every few months, we have a panel discussion on the upcoming Israeli election. And I am just wondering if you could share, perhaps, to begin tonight's conversation, a uh, overview of sorts. Where are we? It seems that Israel keeps having elections. What's at stake in this election? Um, David, it's an honor to welcome you. Well, I know we're just after the high holidays, but I think the joke is you call for one Israeli election, and how many do you get? You don't know. They just keep coming and coming and coming. It's a little bit of a Hanukkah, uh, the elections that just keep going and going. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, the opportunity and the continued partnership, as you said. It's, it's really an honor to, to speak with you all, uh, and thanks for those who came and the, bearing the, the rain uh, today as well. Look, this is, as, as Michal said, uh, 
you know, uh, five elections in less than four years, uh, all seemingly with the same basic question. Yes, Bibi, or no Bibi. That has really dominated uh, Israel's political discourse, uh, even as we head into election number five. But even as every election has essentially been about the pro-Netanyahu bloc uh, versus the anti-Netanyahu bloc, and this, uh, uh, the, the, those blocks being stuck, right? Uh, to form a coalition government, you need 61 seats, a majority of the 120-seat uh, Israeli Knesset. And essentially, uh, over the last uh, uh, cycles of elections, it's been very difficult, if not impossible, uh, for either the pro-BB bloc, pro-Netanyahu bloc, or the anti-Netanyahu bloc to both form and sustain a government over time. Now, that's been the constant question, but this fifth round has a number of new elements and really that make this round more unique and I'd argue more consequential than any of the ones before it. Uh, and you have a number of firsts in this series. Uh, the first first uh, would be that Benjamin Netanyahu is entering these elections not as prime minister, but as opposition leader. Uh, consequently, of course, you have Yair Lapid entering uh, an election for the first time in the seat uh, of the prime minister's chair. And we've seen how that has impacted this round. Most notably, you've also, this is the first election after the experiment of the last election, where we had Ra'am, the Israeli Arab party, joining the coalition for the first time. And this is essentially can be viewed as a referendum uh, for its voters and those in the Arab sector. Is that strategy uh, of entering into coalition governments, of cooperating with Jewish parties, uh, a strategy to be continued or to be shunned? And I think this is a real first test of that strategy. Um, and of course, it's also uh, the first in which we have seen, as Michal, I think, began to give reference to, the first time in which a uh, particularly right-wing uh, and rather radical uh, party, the Religious Zionism Party, is polling at incredibly high levels, which could really disrupt the way in which we think about Israeli politics on a really wide scale. Uh, and this, when I re refer to them polling at a high level, uh, at most recent polls, the Religious Zionism Party, and perhaps we'll discuss it more, is polling as the third largest party uh, in the Knesset, putting it in the position, if Netanyahu is able to form a government, putting this rather radical party in a position to not only uh, uh, demand uh, to be in the government, but to have control over uh, uh, significant ministries uh, as well. And so a number of things that make this unique and that make this outcome especially consequential. Will we head in the direction of continued broad-based governments that include Arab parties? Um, or will we see a rather radical right-wing shift in the, the discourse? And I have to throw out another option, which is the shrug option right? Which is the surprise option, because I think if you've looked at the last, now this is heading into the fifth round of elections, we've seen a number of surprises along the way, whether it was in one of the elections, Benny Gantz, the newcomer of Israeli politics, going from brand new on the scene to over 30 seats in just a matter of months, right? Uh, whether it was uh, Benny Gantz then turning on his voters and entering into a government with Netanyahu, a stunning development. Then we had another stunning development, Naftali Bennett, uh, shifting from the uh, pro-BB bloc to the anti-B bloc, and of course, the stunning development of an Israeli Arab party joining Israeli coalition politics. My question heading into round number five is, what's the stunning development to come that we don't yet know? And of course, there's a difference between what's going to happen on election night and ultimately the coalition politics will emerge. We've all become used to that rhythm of, we know the election is gonna be next Tuesday, but we have no idea how the coalition is going to shake out. Um, for those of us who might be initiates to uh, the nature of coalition politics, um, and you know, though you're sitting on the Bema, prophecy is not a muscle group I expect of you. Uh, is there, um, 
what what are the tea leaves saying right now? What are what are we looking at, or what are at least the polls signaling right now? We, we've been talking for four minutes. You're also already asking me to make a prediction. <laughs> no, um, I mean for for Netanyahu to. Um, cobble together a coalition, he would have to do what? He would have to bring who so, to the table. First, I think it's fair to say that entering into this election uh, on November 1st, Netanyahu has the momentum. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that, uh, that he's riding the momentum really for two reasons that I can, I can point to. Um, one is that if you look at those pro-Netanyahu block and the anti-Netanyahu block, the pro-Netanyahu block uh, consists of the Likud party, the, the right-wing religious Zionism party that I just mentioned, uh, and the ultra-Orthodox religious parties, both Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Okay? Every one of those parties is, is polling well above the electoral threshold. In Israel, in order to enter into the Knesset, you need at, at, at least enough votes to have four Knesset seats, which effectively represents 3.25% uh, of the, uh, the body of the electorate, roughly 140,000 uh, uh, or, so, or so votes. Um, everyone in the pro-Netanyahu bloc is currently polling well above that threshold, very safely above that threshold, and collectively in the polls right now are polling at roughly 60 seats, okay? Right into a deadlock. On the anti-Netanyahu side, uh, championed by Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz and the like, those parties are dangerously flirting with that electoral threshold. Uh, currently, uh, the Labor Party is polling at four or five seats. Mm -hmm. Just a bit of a slip in the Labor Party could be out of Israeli politics, out of the Knesset. Meretz, the uh, classic uh, progressive Zionist liberal party, is uh, polling at four seats flirting with that threshold. And then if you look at the Arab parties, we have really, if the story of this election is to be broken down into two main points, it's the phenomenon of what's happening on the religious right and with the Arab uh, sector specifically. Today on the Arab side of, of, of the, uh, on the Arab, uh, within the Arab public on the anti-Netanyahu bloc side, there, there are two uh, factions heading into this this election, uh, both of which dangerously flirting with that threshold at four seats. Uh, unlike uh, in the beginning of this several rounds of election where the Arab parties joined into the joint list, a combination of four different Arab parties, they polled, uh, I'm sorry, they uh, in the first election received 15 mandates, 15 seats in the Knesset, had a strong voter turnout of some 64% of eligible voters in the Israeli Arab sector. This was un unreal to get 15. They were, they were a significant-sized party. Uh, today, they have splintered. Uh, in the last round, they came at 46% of voter turnout. There are some estimates that that could dip below 40% this time around. And we have two... Uh, parties uh, on the anti-Netanyahu side of the blocks uh, that are both essentially at four seats. So, so. I never, there, there are deep implications of this, mm -hmm. and I've never thought about it, but this is as good a time as any. Yeah. Um, so if you have all of these, whether they're Arab parties, whether it's merits, whether it's labor, yeah. who are on this sort of threshold of meeting this minimal yeah. four seats, and I am... Uh, a Fabrenta anti-Netanyahu voter, um, I need to make a calculation as to whether or not I am going to vote for, let's say, the Labor Party or Merits, or is that vote going to be better served voting for Lapid or Gantz, exactly. who might um, have, have who who have clearly passed that threshold? One hundred percent. That's so the strategy. I, I just never like thought of it until right here. The Israeli voter um, uh, needs to be very strategic, uh, frankly. And in the next week, this, is, this scenario you just described is very much what's playing out over the course of the next week, where Netanyahu is looking at the current polls and he's seeing the rise of religious Zionism, which, by the way, this summer was pulling at nine seats. And most recently, it's gone to as high as 14 
in just a matter of a couple of months, mostly at the expense of Netanyahu's own Likud party. And so Netanyahu, over the next week, uh, I have no doubt, will make an effort to bring some of those, uh, uh, th- th- those, current, those seats being pulled uh, right now for religious time, to bring them back to the Likud. And Lapid has a, a real choice to make as well. Does he try to churn out uh, the vote in the Arab sector, as he was just a few days ago, to ensure that regardless of who the Arabs vote for, they're voting to make sure those parties are with sexual? And is he going to cannibalize merits and labor in order to make sure that Yeshatid, his party, is the largest and has the chance to form a government first? And so this is very much a strategic question at the moment, whereas Netanyahu can play with that strategic question because there's no danger. Lapid, if he loses even one of those parties, it threatens the possibility that that 60-seat ceiling that the pro-Netanyahu block right now will rise above 60 to 61, and we will see the formation of a right-wing government. Right, and then I'm going to move out of the weeds, but I just never... (laughs) But if I am a labor voter and I vote for labor and labor doesn't make that threshold, then what happens to that vote? Your vote is wasted. Your vote is wasted. Okay. Um, So what does this um, mean... Uh, as far as away from the election politics or to uh, a reflection of the Israeli electorate, right? Clearly, um, there has been a shift rightward. Um, Israel is a center-center-right country right now that may or may not reflect your views, my views, anyone's views, but ultimately in a democracy, it reflects the will of the people. So, So how... Removing ourselves just from the, the, the news of next week's election, um, what do you make of that? What does that signal in terms of where the sensibility of Israel is that there's this, this rightward shift? Look, I, I think that um, this, is, this is not new, so I, I can't point to just developments over the last year to, to pinpoint why we're suddenly seeing religious Zionism pulling so high. But I do think the circumstances of the last government have given an especial rise specifically to the religious Zionism faction. Um, and you have to look at the story of Naftali Bennett and the story of what's happening amongst the ultra-Orthodox as well. Um, the story of Naftali Bennett is that he led the Jewish Home Party, a party that is traditionally religious, Zion, uh, religious uh, uh, nationalist Zionist party, including many, much support from uh, the West Bank settlement communities. And Naftali Bennett took this rather right-wing party that was viewed as being safely in the Netanyahu camp and took them into a coalition that was not only now forming the anti-Netanyahu camp, but took them into a coalition with labor, with merits, and with the Arab parties. Um, and many of those voters viewed that as an absolute betrayal. And rather than risk voting for one of the parties that, you know, uh, has the potential to consider a future coalition politics, I think you're seeing some of that support shift to the furthest right-wing fringe to guarantee there's no chance that any sort of deal with the Arab parties or with the left is going to happen with religious Zionism. So it's a kind of consolidation of, of right-wing support uh, on, on, uh, on the one hand. I think you're also seeing a growing number of Israelis in the ultra-Orthodox sector no longer vote for their ultra-Orthodox religious parties, begin, beginning to vote with nationalist uh, intentions and increasingly voting with the right. Um, and yes, it's also part of a wave that we are seeing in countries all over the world at the moment, uh, with uh, lurching towards provocative politicians who are using uh, the media and who are using uh, provocations uh, and outrage uh, to stoke and gin up popular support. And that's certainly the case uh, 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 that's happening within religious Zionism and with the uh, unsavory Itamar Ben-Gvir character uh, uh, especially. Right. 
Right. So let's let's turn to to Itamar Ben Gvir specifically because um, I think you have someone who uh, reflected a an ideology in the Kaf party in Kahana's um, mind, which was outlawed legally um, by the by the Israeli government and the United um, States and the United States. And you have an ideology. I mean, he was a man who had um, a picture of Baruch Goldstein who massacred. Um, uh, innocence at uh, in Hebron at the, the the cave of the patriarchs. A picture of him on his wall, um, and now here um, he is. Um, both he as a person and his the ideology that he espouses um, taking center stage in this election. I mean that's that that's tough. I mean it, it was not lost on us that. Uh, you know, uh, Senator Menendez, um, apparently, uh, when he met with uh, Net- Netanyahu, I believe, some weeks ago, warned Netanyahu of the implications that such a coalition with Ben Gvir would have on um, Israeli politics, on Arab-Israeli relations, on Israel's relationship with American Jewry, and frankly, Israel's relationship with the world. So, so this is this is no small thing. It's it's no small thing, and um, while I think the outrage and the deep concern uh, is is about Itamar Ben Gvir specifically, because this this is really, I mean, you touched on a few of the low lights, but we could go on. Um, it, it's quite concerning. Um, I think it's there are others within this faction that are also. You know, Smotrich, the head of the, the party, dis- has described himself as a proud homophobe. They've also created uh, an alliance, that party, with a- another political faction called the Noam. That is a single-issue faction that is only uh, anti-LGBTQ rights. That's its only agenda. Um, and so this is rather extreme, and to say the least... Um, it is deeply concerning. It's understandable that someone like Menendez, um, who has a history of being among the strongest stalwart supporters, defenders of the state of Israel in Washington, uh, would raise that concern because it does put into question the fundamental uh, strength behind the U.S.-Israel alliance, which is our shared democratic values. A few days ago, Smotrich, the head of the religious Zionism faction, maybe did Lapid a favor, quite honestly, which is he announced his agenda for the election. His agenda is for the Religious Zionism Party to take over the justice ministry and to essentially make Israel's court system, you know, advisory in nature, (laughs) not actually binding, and to enable uh, religious Zionism to essentially pass legislation that would make Netanyahu's criminal trials uh, disappear. And the manner of which just how outrageous and far-reaching was this policy pronouncement of their agenda has likely actually backfired and raised alarm among many of Lapid's supporters and those in the anti-Netanyahu bloc just what's at stake uh, in this election. Um, And it's a lot. So let me turn to some events that on one level might be totally disconnected to the election, but I can't help but wonder if they are entirely connected to the election. So as I'm looking through um, the news coming out of Israel, and we can do this one at a time, um, we have an, a, a rise in violence in the West Bank. Um, we have a, an energy deal. Uh, with Lebanon, um, which from today's news sounds nearly sealed, um, but not a linear path by any means. We have um, Lapid coming to the UN and the prime minister announcing his hopes for a two-state solution. Uh, I'm probably missing out a few, not to mention what's going on in Ukraine, but let's do it one at a time. And I'm wondering, are any of these things positioning in terms of the Israeli electorate, or are they discrete independent things that the Lebanon energy thing has been going on for years and it, and it just so happens to, 
to be following falling right now? Uh, they're great questions. I mean, does the Lebanese deal help Lapid? Maybe. Um, right? Uh, it certainly demonstrates that he is uh, a prime minister who can also point to a deal uh, with an Arab state that is, uh, um, you know, a, a, a negotiated agreement facilitated by the United States that not only Netanyahu can do it, uh, but he is among those that, you know, it, it doesn't take magic to be prime minister. Um, I saw today in the Israeli press the, 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 the idea that, that Net Lapid is trying to demonstrate is that as prime minister, it's kind of boring, right? That, that life moves on with somebody other than Netanyahu as prime minister is, is kind of Lapid's message, right? And to strike this agreement is uh, certainly a positive for Lapid. Um, does it change votes from one block to another? I, I doubt that very, very much. Um, I think when you saw the attitudes uh, amongst the Israeli public, uh, around the Lebanon deal, you know, a third will say it's good and a third will say it's bad and the remainder will say, I, I, I don't know. It, you know, I'm not, not quite sure. And Netanyahu initially attacked it for uh, being uh, bad for Israel's security interests, but it was, of course, supported by all of Israel's security establishment. And Netanyahu is somewhat backtracked from some of his initial criticism. And certainly it's not something that Netanyahu would undo should he become uh, uh, prime minister. Um, so it's positive for Lapid. Is it going to actually impact votes? I, I, I don't, I don't actually think so. Um, and I can't speak to the, to the timing, uh, quite honestly. Um, the, uh, the violence, uh, you, you mentioned, um, I, I think this has been simmering for quite some time. Um, this has more to do, I'd argue with Palestinian politics at the moment than Israeli politics. Right. Can you speak to that just for a minute? I mean, what, what's sure. going on in the Palestinian uh, leadership right now? Well, I think the Palestinian authorities, uh, it has a massive legitimacy crisis um, uh, in the West Bank today. Um, uh, the PA is especially weak uh, outside of the Ramallah bubble. Uh, what we have seen in most recent weeks is collaboration, particularly in the Northern West Bank, between militant activists from different factions, meaning Hamas, together with Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, together with Palestinian Islamic Jihad, coordinating amongst themselves younger activists, younger militants, cooperating across factions and creating something entirely new, essentially a gang that they're calling the Lion's Den. Uh, and we saw a targeted assassination, actually, by the IDF of one of the leaders just yesterday. Um, this is an entirely new development, but signals how the Palestinian Authority is beginning to lose its ability, frankly, to administer and control what's happening in major Palestinian cities, including Nablus. Um, and as a result, we've seen this uptick of violence spurred by this new uh, collaboration. Uh, really, of 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 of, of Palestinian, uh, uh, but that collaboration is a sign of weakness of the Palestinian Authority. A hundred percent. You know, um, you know, it, it's it's enough to say that Abbas, you know, uh, is now on the sixteenth year of his four year term. Uh, he uh, is uh, deeply uh, today. Um, disliked, frankly, by the Palestinian public. There, I think more than uh, 75%, might be 80 now, have said in polls they think he should resign. Um, and it has to do for, with a number of factions, not, factors, not only the inability to produce on a political process, but it's also the increasing authoritarian tendencies uh, that we've seen from Abbas, the sidelining of any serious uh, future political leadership. This is a man who's 87 years old, who smokes a pack a day, and who has systematically sidelined anybody who would challenge him uh, to where now, essentially, the Palestinian scene is controlled by Abbas and two of his friends. Uh, and they have control in Ramallah, um, but are increasingly losing the ability um, to both contribute basic civil administration and uh, to actually confront the security challenges in major Palestinian cities uh, in the West Bank. That is deeply worrisome has nothing to do with necessarily Israeli elections. It's deeply worse from a broader security perspective and the future of Israeli-Palestinian relations. 
I do think, however, that what's the story here around the violence is that there was a targeted assassination yesterday of a significant figure in this Lion's Den group, um, that the IDF is doing what it can in terms of addressing security. And thus far, we haven't seen some major collapse. Again, Lapid is doing kind of prime minister type things. And is, you know, um, I don't think this is, again, going to be a major factor uh, in terms of switching votes between the blocks. Um, and I'm sorry, you had one other... Uh, no, I have about eight hours no, of okay. questions for you, but... Uh, so I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not worried about me, but, but yeah. this question of the Palestinian community, I mean, I remember, David, about 18 months ago when um, Tel Aviv was being shelled from Gaza and there were riots in Akko and in Lod and, and this whole question of uh, the, the lines being blurred between the Israeli Arab community, the Palestinian community, the Palestinian Authority, um, and the Ram, which at the time was in coalition talks, and then subsequently the coalition with Lapid. I mean, this is this is a moving target of of where the sensibility. Uh, and I'm not suggesting for a second it's monolithic, but um, and and you yourself alluded to at the beginning that the 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 tectonic shifts that are taking place within the um, Israeli Arab electorate right yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, we could speak a lot more. Um, I have to make a plug, though, because we have a terrific uh, episode of our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, where you can, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, <laughs> but we have an episode that is specifically about the Israeli Arab vote and the aftermath of that May 2021 riots in the streets of Lod and, and seeing that and how are, is the Israeli Arab community now thinking about their identity and what they want of, of, of their political leadership. And it's rather remarkable to see the opinion polling of the Israeli Arab sector. And what's it saying? And it's saying that they want more cooperation, uh, even as they're choosing not to vote, right? So you'll see in the 60s and plus, a majority say, we want the Arab political parties to be in cooperation cooperation with Jewish parties to potentially get more to benefit the Arab sector. You know, upwards of 65% say, yes, cooperate, but now less than 40% are actually interested in going to vote, okay? And there's a disconnect. Um, and I think that some of that uh, is a result of the failure of the Arab parties to frankly cooperate amongst themselves. We have a radically different set of interests represented right, for the Israeli Arab sector, from communist left-wing to Islamic fundamentalist conservative-type um, parties, um, their inability to cooperate and benefit, uh, ultimately benefit uh, the Arab sector that's suffering terribly right now from dramatic increase in crime. Uh, and that is really Lapid's message of the moment, is, is, is to get to the Arab sector and talk about the worrisome increase in crime and the like. Um, but I think there is a deeper conversation that's happening underneath, which is, are we reaching a moment where Israeli Arab society are looking towards the potential of future cooperation and are looking for those opportunities to engage? Are they actually inspired that by engaging both in the political process and then encouraging their leadership to participate with Jewish parties that they'll actually see the benefits of doing so? Or will they continue to be uh, viewed as or treated as second-class citizens uh, who are actually participating in a process that is actually futile and won't actually benefit them? And there are some who might argue that Ra'am, this experiment of joining the coalition, um, it could go both ways. That Ra'am joining the coalition um, did not have enough time to produce uh, a, a sense of normalcy and of sense where they could actually see the benefits of Ram's participation, that the time has been too short. Um, but we will see. Um, will the Arab public, number one, will they vote? And when they vote, are they going to reward those that are looking to cooperation uh, or not? I'm going to pivot uh, to the Russian community in Israel. Because I remember, uh, this was probably election number one or two, I mean, now we're on number five in the last handful of years, where Avigdor Lieberman 
was seen as the kingmaker. Uh, and I haven't heard hide or hair of Lieberman right now, um, nor have I heard any discussion of the Russian-Israeli community playing a role um, in this election. So I'm wondering, have they, it's a significant portion of the Israeli electorate, have they been absorbed by the other parties? Is this somehow connected to what's happening in Ukraine yeah. and Russia? Uh, how do we make sense of this? It's a really good question. It's really amazing when you think about four years ago, why we had elections to begin with. Because Avigdor Lieberman, right, wanted a, a, a bill for to draft the ultra-Orthodox into the army. I mean, we haven't been talking about that issue in a, in a while, but originally, it's hard to like remember. That's why, we, that's why we got into this. And then after that first election, Lieberman was expected to... Uh, to join with Netanyahu, there were headlines where Bibi wins the election expected to form right-wing government. And of course, we were all stunned when there was no agreement to draft the Orthodox into the army. And Lieberman announces he's not forming, he's not ever going to join with Netanyahu and joins the opposing blank, uh, bloc. That was like a political earthquake that feels like 17 political earthquakes ago. <laughs> but it's good to, to raise the question of Lieberman, who is, by the way, the finance minister uh, through all of this, um, but when it comes to the Russian parties, I think there is some of the normalcy of Russian parties no longer being a part of the Russian party, of Lieberman's party. But there are some going to the Likud and there's some going to uh, elsewhere uh, uh, on, on the political map. And when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, they're not of a monolithic view. There are some that would like to see more support for the Ukrainian perspective, and there's some that would like to see more uh, hands-off and, and, and are actually more aligned to Putin. And so the delicate balance that Lieberman has played with that particular community, what Lieberman has staked his election kind of message on, really, uh, is it, it goes back to where he was gaining amongst voters in the previous rounds, which was uh, promoting secularism over the orthodox. And of course, that is an issue that is especially resonance among many in the Russian-speaking uh, uh, community who are, are unable to you know, uh, prove their Judaism and, and, and the like. Um, uh, I think that um, uh, his most recent election sort of announcement was not about uh, you know, uh, uh, drafting the orthodox, but it was about promoting common core curriculum in Israel's public school system, something that is opposed by the ultra-Orthodox. And it's sort of a signal of, you know, this is actually the thing that Lieberman is pushing now is basic standards um, for all uh, Israeli students. He could come to New York. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And uh, Netanyahu's already made a pledge to support uh, you know, not having to push forward any common core uh, for students if he's able to form a government. Uh, famously, the leader of the United Torah Judaism faction just a couple of weeks ago says uh, that math and science were not nearly as important as Torah study, uh, or that I think the quote was something like math and science are not are are are, are not are not critical or so, something to that. It was rather shocking this sort of statement. But that's what Lieberman is really pushing on, expecting that he'll not only get support among his traditional base, but also will bring in some secular support as well. Right. And in Broader this secular support, yeah. In this cast of characters, um, you know, there, there are some people who you've, who you've mentioned in passing, whether it's Gantz or Saar or um, Eisenrod, uh, Eisenkot, yeah. Eisenrod, um, that um, sort of new figures which may or may not um, enter a coalition. It's unclear to me. Uh, who's sworn a blood oath that they will or who won't. Uh, it's, so, so we should talk about or Benny Gantz yeah, for a moment. Benny Gantz, yeah. Benny Gantz entered politics in the beginning of this election era. Uh, we've seen him join with Lapid, as I mentioned a, mo a few moments ago, surge to 30-plus seats. Then he joins Netanyahu, crashes down. He's now formed yet another alliance. Now they're calling themselves, I think, the, the National Union Party in, in, in English. Um, but he has a cast of characters that are all over the, the traditional left-right political map, right? Zev Elkin, Gidon Saar, traditional figures of the right. With the newcomer, Gadi Eisenkot, the former head IDF chief of staff, 
who, when entering politics, said he's entering politics because his number one issue is ensuring that Israel ultimately separates from the Palestinians because the Palestinian issue is an existential threat to Israel's future as a secure Jewish and democratic state, not the kind of language of the right, okay? Um, but Benny Gantz today is going for what uh, is often referred to as the soft right, right? Those who fit that description that you, dis- you outlined of the traditional trajectory of the moment of Israeli politics, meaning center, center right, but are fed up with Netanyahu, uh, and the corruption charges and the endless elections. Uh, this is the typical uh, Gantz voter. The question, frankly, is what does this party actually stand for, if anything at all? Um, really, uh, it's unclear, given the characters involved in this party, that they actually have a coherent set of values or goals. The one thing that they are campaigning on and they've announced as part of their election push uh, is crime inside Israel, meaning they, they have too much division in their own party to actually put something forward on the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Gadi Eisenkot was interviewed uh, in the Israeli radio a couple days ago and was continually pushed to share what he actually thinks should be done on the Palestinian issue. And he just was adamantly avoiding saying anything about the Palestinian issue, but they've announced a significant plan to address rising crime. And they're doing so with their security credentials as two former heads of the IDF, chief, uh, two former chiefs of staff of the IDF, focused on an issue that they can all agree on, which is crime, which is acknowledged to be a... It seems like every crisis. day there's another news report. Right. But, but I, I think it's important to mention that Benny Gantz uh, thinks that he is running to become prime minister today. He thinks this is not a two-man race for prime minister between Lapid and Netanyahu. Gantz genuinely believes... Uh, that this is a three-man race, that when it comes to coalition formation, Lapid and Netanyahu won't be able to do it, but that Gantz, unlike Lapid, is going to be able to negotiate with the ultra-Orthodox, right? And I think it can't be put out of uh, question uh, that Netanyahu, I think it's becoming harder for Netanyahu to consider this, but I think when it comes to coalition formation politics, and he's looking at the unsavory characters on the far-right extremes of Ben Gvir and Smotrich and the like, I think it's very possible you could see a scenario in which Benny Gantz once again says, for the benefit of putting Israel first, I am going to enter into yet another coalition with Benjamin Netanyahu, even though I was spurned the last time around because I am saving Israel from the Ben Gvirs of the world. And of course, Netanyahu has already knowing that this is in the political discourse, Netanyahu came out and said, Gantz is a leftist, he wants to divide Jerusalem, I will never join with Gantz, etc., etc. Um, uh, we shall see. Uh, what is said before election day is, is usually uh, uh, ignored after election day. We've seen that already mm-hmm. now uh, in a number of Israeli elections, so, so time will tell. But Benny Gantz is hoping that even though he won't be amongst the top two, maybe not even the top three, biggest parties, that he, like Bennett, with only seven seats being up, becoming prime minister, that he might emerge as a consensus figure that is able to emerge. We will see. So, I know, unlike the J Streets or APAC, Israel Policy Forum is not an advocacy organization in in that sense. But I I, I do know that you're very tapped into not just what's going on in Israel, but how the issues affect the relationship between the United States and Israel. So I'm wondering, David, if you could, A, I'd love a bit of a primer, and I don't think everyone necessarily knows um, the scope of IPF's work. So if you could share a little bit of that but also share how you see this moment in terms of um, the relationship between the American administration and um, what's going on in Israel. No, I appreciate the question. If you take Israel Policy Forum and slice it in half, uh, one half of our work looks to affect uh, policy and one half affecting the Jewish community and its understanding of these issues. On the policy side, we produce policy research analysis uh, working with think tanks both in Israel and the United States on pressing issues uh, uh, affecting political security and economic developments and how the United States might play a role, specifically examining 
how the United States might play a role in, 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 in improving the political and economic uh, and security environment he- leading to an eventual two-state uh, outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's the policy research side. We also work uh, uh, in government relations on the Hill to educate members of Congress and their staff on those uh, ideas and anal- on that analysis. On the Jewish community side, we have community education uh, that we uh, are working with organizations across the communal spectrum to create a deeper understanding of the complexities of these issues. And we have a, a young professional program we call IPF Atid, uh, IPF Future, uh, of, of people in their 20s and 30s post-college that are meeting all over the country to have a more informed and thoughtful conversation about these issues and our role in these issues uh, moving forward. In terms of Washington today and it's how it's impacted by the elections and the like, I think it's really important to recognize that the Biden administration has kind of had it pretty good uh, with its relationship with the Israeli government, meaning Netanyahu has not been prime minister now <laughs> for some time. Uh, and there has been overwhelming sentiment on the part of this current Israeli government to maintain positive relations with the White House. Um, and uh, there is a sign, sort of mutual agreement at the moment that, you know, uh, don't rock the boat, do no harm. Um, as I mentioned, Lapid wants things to be boring. Um, quite honestly, by the Biden administration right now wants things to be boring in the Israeli-Palestinian arena and in the relationship between the United States and Israel. Keep the conflicts, uh, if there is a disagreement on the approach to Iran, keep that uh, uh, behind the scenes. If there's a disagreement on the issues of the Palestinian issue, keep that behind the scenes. Don't raise expectations, but also don't clash. There has been a very mutually beneficial arrangement uh, with the current certainly the current prime minister and also previously with Naftali Bennett. I think if you have a right-wing government (laughs) with the kind of unsavory figures that we talked about before, uh, it changes the dynamic considerably. Uh, I would argue that at some point, we've reached the point that where the the polarization around the question of Israel is not only uh, in Washington, but it's also in Israel. Right where uh, I think it has become, it's in some level politically advantageous uh, to elevate uh, Republican voices over Democratic ones. Uh, if you're on the right side of the Israeli political spectrum, I fully expect that a right-wing government that included religious Zionism, or frankly that was headed by Netanyahu, will increasingly uh, have uh, uh, disagreements with the Biden administration when it comes to the Iranian issue and certainly on the Palestinian issue. And it's likely to drag the Biden administration to have to focus more on those issues um, because it is dealing with an Israeli partner that it doesn't always see eye to eye with. And so I, I think there is the potential for clashes uh, going forward. I mean, clashes, disagreements, public spats and the like. Um, uh, uh, should this sort should of a right wing uh, government uh, where, where you just will not have that political, um, you know, uh, uh, chemistry that you currently have uh, between Yair Lapid, who you know would fit very, you know, uh, would fit well in the shoes of kind of like a Democratic senator, you know, yeah. uh, he fits that fits that that mold. Um, so yeah, I think it's it, it changes things uh, in that calculus right. significantly. Thank you. Let's uh, open it up for a few questions, if anyone has any right now. Uh, yes, sir. And remember, questions end with a question mark. What do you think the implications of the election will be for non-Orthodox Jews in the diaspora? The implications of the elections are not... Well, that requires me to predict the elections. Uh, <laughs> Which uh, I think is very tough. I can say that, um, you know, uh, on, on, on issues that American Jews care deeply about, uh, issues of recognition of the Western Wall uh, and also of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I think that if a right-wing government is not formed, um, you may see some uh, steps, some rhetoric that's uh, improved. I don't see any far-reaching changes, even with the current sort of, uh, 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 what, do you, what do you call it, interim government, uh, or if you could actually see Lapid somehow form uh, an anti-BB block government. Uh, I don't see anything far-reaching. Um, 
but there would certainly be uh, opens and op- openings and possibilities. Um, I think that a lot would hinge, um, uh, you know, on the on the the nature of the coalition and ha- and how it's built. But I certainly think the rhetoric would be vastly improved, and there's possibility there could be some very meaningful steps um, uh, uh, forward on some of the causes that, uh, particularly the progressive. American Jewish community uh, cares deeply about. Certainly, if you have a right-wing religious community where uh, Smotrich and the like uh, are regularly denouncing uh, anything that's not an orthodox stream of Judaism, um, I don't think that's something that uh, uh, is going to to benefit. Um, I think it's notable that uh, very recently there was a gathering in Tel Aviv uh, engaging uh, sort of expats uh, who live in Israel, or I should say, people who made Aliyah, um, uh, around diaspora concerns. Um, and, you know, the Likud uh, didn't bother to send anybody at all, uh, but each one of the parties was supposed to be represented. Uh, the Likud didn't send anyone uh, uh, at all, and certainly the religious are not going to send anyone. Um, but I think that uh, uh, these same sort of issues that I just described with the Biden administration, feeling like it has a, a partner with which it can discuss, even if uh, things aren't moving as fast as we'd like. I think that's one scenario. And of course, the other scenario means uh, uh, disappointment and disconnection and more discord. Right. Yes, uh, one and then two. Thanks. David, from what I've heard, the uh, you, you expect the election to be very close one way or another. And it's going to be probably tough to, to form some kind of coalition, um, which might mean you know, a sixth election within a reasonable period of time. Do you think it's ever likely that the electoral system can be reformed, that one doesn't have to go to the polls you know, every, uh, every so often? It's uh, such a great question. Because uh, Israeli politics is funny, you know. They, they've tried a few different things. They tried one-time direct election for prime minister. That didn't really work out. So they kind of decided to go back. And there was a, an experiment that was made uh, uh, not long ago um, before this last round of the election. And the experiment was, let's raise the electoral threshold from 1.4, for 1.4 I think it was, uh, to now 3.25%. Now, originally... You recall this was the idea of Avigdor Lieberman, and it was largely viewed as an effort to sideline some of the Israeli Arab parties that would be unable to get into the Knesset at a 3.25% electoral threshold, and it upset the Arab parties, but it also upset those on the extreme right fringe uh, who also viewed this as preventing them from entering the Knesset. There's a terrific analysis. Haviv Redegur of the Times of Israel wrote about this. And uh, uh, recently in the Times of Israel, you should, I I encourage everyone to check it out. But it was talking about how this raising of the electoral threshold has completely backfired. If the goal was to sideline voices on the extremes, it's actually elevated voices of the extremes. um, Because it now is essential that every vote on either side of the blocks, get past that electoral threshold. And in order to raise support for those on the margins, those in the center of the spectrum, or the right and left, you know, within the, the window of, uh, of broad political discourse, have actually had to uh, encourage those in the extremes to make sure they get up to, to uh, beyond that electoral threshold. So that's where you see Netanyahu, who just two years ago said that Itamar Ben-Gvir is not fit to be a minister is now saying that just yesterday uh, that Ben Veer will certainly be a minister uh, in, in, in the government, um, ensuring that their folks will come out uh, and, and, and vote. And so th- I think wh- there is a, a number of questions, a lot, I think a key question, uh, though, to look at and to study has been the impact of raising this electoral threshold on top of the political paralysis sparked by Netanyahu's uh, uh, criminal trials, and we must say it's not just his criminal trials, but it's his bag of tricks has run out. Okay, if you look at the anti BB block, it's filled with characters who have served in a past BB block. It's Avigdor Lieberman, 
his former right-hand man, Gidon Saar, uh, his former Enzev uh, uh, Elkin in, in the Likud party alongside Netanyahu. Lapid has served in, uh, in, in, a, in a, a Netanyahu government. It goes on and on. But he has played them all. And they are not going to be tricked again. And so I'd argue if you look at two ingredients for this political paralysis, uh, one is the electoral threshold and how it's been raised, creating parties that have no chance to consider you know, cooperation because they're so far apart on the spectrum. The other is Netanyahu himself. This, it's almost a perfect storm of, of, the raising, of this electoral threshold being raised and the, just the nature of Netanyahu in this political moment under criminal trial and, and, and the history that he now has with all of these other characters. That's led to this uh, being stuck. And I think, um, you know, absent a clear victory, uh, something will have to change. I don't, uh, I think it will be interesting to see if any political reform could actually be advanced in the midst of political paralysis. Um, but I think Netanyahu uh, uh, leaving the scene is an ingredient for political stability. Uh, whether that will happen, I think, is uh, anyone's guess, but I w- would be guessing that Netanyahu's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but certainly, if you remove Netanyahu from the scene, uh, as Yair Lapid said just on television two days ago, uh, I am happy to form a, a, a coalition government with Likud as soon as the election takes place, as long as Netanyahu is not involved. And so you remove Netanyahu, and I think you immediately have uh, co- po- political stability. And we have time for one last quick question, please. Be quick. Um, picking up on that, uh, do you, you talked about Benny Gantz um, kind of straddling the political spectrum a bit, but more, well, positioning himself as a kingmaker. Do you think there's any chance that the uh, neither coalition can form a government and they turn to a deadlocked situation where Benny Gantz says, you'll form the government? Meaning Benny Gantz will form the government. Yeah, I think he'll, he'll certainly make an attempt to get that opportunity. Whether that's actually real or not is a, a big question. Can he actually bring, uh, I mean, who, you have to look at the actual numbers, right? Um, of who's, who's going to be in his government. If, if he's going to do something other than what Lapid's doing, he's either going to pick off members from the Likud party the Likud party today is more pro-Netanyahu and standing behind Netanyahu than at any point. He has essentially eliminated all of those who were waffling over what, you know, the, the Gidon Sars and, uh, and the like who were challenging Netanyahu are all gone. These are all Netanyahu loyalists. So the idea that Gantz is going to pick off uh, some of the Likud, I think, is suspect. Is, uh, I, I'm doubtful. So then it, it, Likud is not in. Is he going to be able to bring in the ultra-Orthodox? Well, if he's going to bring in the ultra-Orthodox, are they willing to sit in a government with Lapid, who they've been opposed to in the past? Is Meretz and Labor prepared to sit in a government with the Orthodox? Um, all of those questions then come into play. But I will say what I said before, which is there was a surprise after every election round. And I think that uh, <laughs> we will, I, 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 if I'm making a prediction, I think it, it certainly will be close, if not completely deadlocked. But I do think something will happen that I have not said here today. <laughs> and you'll say, that guy, he didn't see that coming. Uh, because something like that will happen. I, I, if I'm making a prediction, it's that I don't know what's going to happen because something's going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and I think that's Israeli politics for you, certainly in the last four years. Very politic way to conclude. David Halperin <laughs> of Israel's Policy Forum. It's always both wonderful and an honor to welcome a dear friend and an institutional friend uh, to Park Avenue Synagogue. Um, Please, God, we will not be meeting again soon on an Israeli election, but perhaps we can figure out a way to uh, join forces and think about how to bring about the the outcome that I know is near and dear uh, to your heart and to my heart, a safe, secure, democratic Israel two-state solution. Thank you so much, David, for being here. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul.